Welcome back to the All Things Food podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nikki Hirstas. Well, here we are, episode nine now of season two, and we'll be very soon wrapping up this season. It sure has gone fast. I would so love to hear what your favorite episode has been throughout season two so far. Maybe it will be this episode. Either way, if you leave a rating or review, it helps more people to discover the podcast and helps me know what you guys are loving. In this episode, I'm joined by Liv Sisson. Liv is originally from Virginia, but has been living in Christchurch for the past three years. Liv writes, lives, and breathes food, foraging, and fungi. And you can find her over on Instagram at Liv underscore Moss with three S's. I am excited for you to hear all about fungi and foraging with Liv. After this conversation, I definitely kept my eyes peeled on my morning walks and have noticed so much more around me than ever before. So welcome Liv to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you here as my guest today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited as well. So today we're going to be diving into the conversation all about fungi and foraging and everything that you're a wealth of knowledge on, but I'd really love it if you could take us back to where your story begins. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Well, I guess to take it all the way back, I'm originally from Virginia, which is on the East coast of the United States, sort of in the mid Atlantic region. And yeah, I grew up there. I spent my childhoods um, in the Blue Ridge mountains and it's actually a really similar environment to Canterbury, which is where I live now in Otatahi Christchurch. Um, but yeah, grew up in Virginia, spent a lot of time outside, grew up in a family of gardeners and gatherers, and have just always loved exploring little worlds and checking out um, sort of the tiny stuff in nature. And that's just kind of led me down this path of exploring different places that I've lived with that kind of lens. And um, yeah, fast forward up, up until now, I um, when I was at university, I did a semester at Otago, which is really when I got into foraging and fungi and really starting to document my finds. And then went back to the U.S., graduated and um, ran into my neighbor at Otago, who's now my partner, and came back here with him. And I've been here three years. And now I work as a food writer, freelance writer, and do a lot of foraging in my free time. Mm. And I mean, that's something that we're going to talk about today. And I guess what what sort of came first for you, the interest in the small things or fungi or the actual foraging itself? Um, I think the interest in small things has always been there and really was something that my mom introduced to me. She was always taking us tide pooling and we would go on walks as kids just to check out dead trees that had fallen and to see what bugs were kind of, you know, making making a home there. Um, so that appreciation's always been been there for me. And then um, I think I kind of took a backwards approach to it because I got really interested in fungi when I was here. And then when I went back to the States, I realized there was so much edible fungi where I lived. Um, and so that's what I started foraging, really. Whereas I think most people start with the easier stuff like edible weeds and work their way up to edible fungi. But yeah, that was kind of my my pathway to get um, to get here. Yeah. Mm. And would fungi be be sort of the main interest for you now? Um, 
It's still definitely the, I think the biggest point of interest for me when I am out foraging. Um, but with fungi, you don't always see it when you go for a forage. So it's nice to have some other species to look for as well. And, um, I've gotten really interested in edible weeds and I've learned a lot more about native species this year as well. So yeah, kind of adding to my, my knowledge base to my brain, I guess, as I go. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. And I guess from where you are now, how many edible fungi would you come across, uh, I guess, in one forage? Yeah, no, great question. Well, I actually, it's a perfect day to have this chat because oftentimes it's none at all. Um, but then in autumn, if I'm out looking for bullets, you know, I'm, I'm seeing them most days when I go out. But at the moment, I'm not seeing heaps. There's some field mushrooms and some puffballs out. Um, but to be totally honest, I haven't done that much foraging this week. But the, just this morning, I went for a 10-minute walk. I had literally just woken up and walked 10 steps outside of my door, like still kind of had sleep in my eyes, wasn't really you know ready for the world yet. And I just looked to my left and I saw a birch bullet, which is um, a great edible fungi that's great to forage. And it's not really the season for them. But I think we've had all this rain, we've had um, some warmer temperatures, so the mycelium was kind of tricked into having this flush. So yeah, so today I found one and I wasn't even expecting it. Um, mm. And then even sometimes in peak season in autumn, um, I'll find none. Like last year I had a great year and I found tons. This year I didn't have, didn't find as many, but I also didn't have as much time to look. So, you know, it's totally variable. Yeah. I probably say I have one uh, successful experience foraging and it was actually in Oregon. Um, cool. And it was foraging for morale mushrooms after yeah. bushfire. And I yeah. guess one thing I noticed in that experience was when you're so fixated on looking for something, sometimes mm -hmm. your mind plays tricks on you and you think, have I seen it or have I missed it? <laughs> Yeah, and when 100%. you're out <laughs> foraging, when you're purposely sort of out trying to look for something, do you have times where you just won't even find it? Or do you have to be in a sort of zone to, to be able to forage oh. properly? <laughs> um, I reckon it's probably a little different for everyone. But I, that is something I really love about it is it's, 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 a, it's a practice, sort of like people practice yoga or people have a creative practice, people who are artists, you know, writers have a writing process. I have a writing process. I'm a writer. Um, and foraging is, is, is much the same in the sense that, in my experience, you can go out and look for something really specifically, but it gets really frustrating if you don't find it quickly. I'm super impatient, <laughs> personally. Yeah. Um, and so I think... Oftentimes, yeah, if you are looking for something specifically, there's a good chance you won't find it. And I think the way I prefer to kind of forage is to really just sort of let it happen in real time. Yeah. And and th that kind of feeling of like childlike joy is really awesome when you do see that thing that you were hoping to hoping to find. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's really all about just kind of using the time that I'm foraging to like relax and just kind of let my mind wander. And then sometimes all of a sudden you see something out of the corner of your eye and this whole little world is just revealed to you and you've you know found a species you've been looking for for ages. Yeah. And where you are, um, 
I guess, would what you'd be foraging for differ hugely to what you had foraged for in other parts of New Zealand or when you were back home in the States? Yeah, great question. Um, I guess to compare Canterbury to where I grew up in the States, um, the climate's actually really similar. The geologic setting is also very similar, minus the volcanics, but we've got a lot of limestone in Virginia as well. So great wine growing region, a lot of um, dairy, you know, sheep and beef, really similar environment. So in terms of the introduced species that you can forage here um, in Christchurch, there's a lot of similarities, like a lot of similar edible weeds, um, birch bullets, um, edible fungi. But then if you get into a native bush section, it's completely different. So that contrast Mm. is really interesting. Um, And then in terms of Christchurch versus the rest of the country, um, there are a lot of similarities across the board, like um, on the edible weed front, you'll see a lot of similar stuff that you would see. You'd see the same things here that you'd find in Auckland and kind of pretty much throughout the country. And then in terms of fungi, porcini is kind of one of the most prized edible species that we get in autumn. Mm. And that really only pops up in um, our established urban centers like Wellington, Christchurch and Dunedin. Um, because that's where you find the older imported trees that uh, brought the spores in accidentally and propagated those species over time. Um, so yeah, there's a bit, there's yeah variety between between places for sure. Yeah, and how many different types of edible fungi actually exist out there that that you could get your hands on? Um, there's heaps, but it all comes down to how much you know and how confident you are and yeah. how much time you have to look. Um, so I kind of tend to stick to the lower stakes species like birch bullet and porcini and um, wild enoki and um, wood bluets. Those are kind of – and field mushrooms and puffballs. Those are some of the easier ones that aren't as high stakes. But, um, yeah, we've got we've got plenty of edible species. You just kind of have to – be confident in foraging them and and know 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 what to look for and know what to Mm. look out for yeah yeah and do you know from your experience and from your learnings is there any difference in the nutritional benefits or compositions of fungi that you find in the wild versus fungi that you would buy at the shop Mm. I'm not too sure about how the nutritional value would differ between um, a wild foraged fungi and what you would get at the supo, but I can imagine it would be similar to some of what we find when we look at, you know, a tomato you might have grown at home versus a tomato Mm. you got um, grown on on a large scale. Like I'm sure that there are nutritional differences between that. Um, But I guess sort of the real value to me of foraging them versus buying them is the is the excitement and the gratification of learning about something carefully looking for it over time finally finding it it's like this almost like a long relationship that you build up with mm. uh, these species that you do forage and then I guess on on the flip side is when you go out foraging if you're not um, hunting or diving or fishing it's hard to forage much protein um so mushrooms offer that denser nutritional profile that can, you know, actually help you quote get a feed when you're <laughs> foraging. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, 
for those who don't really understand fungi and and how it grows and and all of that, how is it that fungi pops up here, there, and everywhere, and different types of fungi shows up mm. in different places? Yeah, great question. So, um, an analogy that I've I like to use sometimes is um, thinking about an apple tree, right? So the apple tree is there all the time. It's there year round. Um, it's it's always alive. It's this living, breathing organism. And then the fruit of the apple tree is obviously the apple. Mm. Um, and then if we don't eat the apple, um, it falls to the ground and might you know produce an, a new apple tree. And so fungi springs forth from not a tree, but something called a mycelium, which is this network of something called hyphae and it's this fungal network um and when it goes to reproduce it sends up a fruiting body like an apple which is the actual mushroom that we see on the surface um and so so yeah it's it's a little bit different it's pretty interesting the mycelial mycelial network is really intelligent and um actually the biggest organism in the world isn't the blue whale it's this massive mycelial network in Oregon where you went foraging Mm, it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, mm. And and I guess some of it is so small and, and su- on such a small scale that that a lot of people don't even know it exists. Yeah, definitely. But I think most people have actually seen it, whether they realized it or not. If you're ever out in the garden and you're digging up some soil and, and you pick up a clump and see a fuzzy kind of white substance, that's mycelium that you're seeing. Okay, but it might not have turned or grown into something exactly that you so can the mycelium <laughs> exactly yeah so the mycelium is always there it's always around um, there's fungal mycelium in almost all the soil around us but it takes certain temperature and moisture levels for it actually to for it to actually fruit yeah. um, it doesn't just you know send up fruit willy-nilly because that would be a waste of energy so it's it's just like this morning when I went out, went out and saw a birch bullet that I wasn't expecting to see because it's not, quote, the season for it, but really it's been pretty warm. And then we had these cold rains, sort of more of a autumnal weather pattern. And mm. so maybe the mycelium was like, oh, great conditions, send up a fruiting body. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And now the word foraging, what does it mean to forage? Per the dictionary, I, f- I think it's just really the practice of of looking and gathering or maybe not even gathering, maybe just looking. I think it can kind of be whatever you want it to be. Yeah. So I guess the end result is not, you know, it's, it's sort of an exploratory activity. It's not always fruitful from a tangible perspective, but more like learning as you go and explore. Yeah, definitely. And it kind of forces, forces you to be patient especially if you're impatient like me because you know you can say oh I'm gonna set off on on my forage and get xyz and make this thing later on but that can actually be like a year's long process um yeah I think a good example of that is um we have an introduced species here called staghorn sumac and sumac is that really beautiful red spice that's in a lot of Middle Eastern cooking. It's very sour and tart. And it's actually native to where I grew up, but it's been introduced in gardens here and it's escaped many gardens. And I had read about this maybe two years ago and I was like, oh, that would be so interesting to forage. And it took me probably a year to actually see sumac on my forages. 
my forays. Um, and then to actually be like, Oh, I think I know what that is. Check it a few times. I see it a few more times. Eventually I was like, okay, I know what this is and I'm ready to forage it now. And I took a little bit home and I tasted it and I did that again. And then I researched it some more. I learned that um, the Cherokee Native Americans used it to make this drink, um, sort of like lemonade. Um, so I did that. And that took me like 18 months to, you know, from start to finish. So it's quite a, can be quite a process. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And there's so much to learn, I guess, because you're out there, you know, you might be out there by yourself or with others who are also foraging, but like what you said, you've learnt you've learnt this all, or you've taught yourself as well. Mm-hmm. I guess where where do you where do you go to get that information and and information that you know is correct, so that you're actually going to be foraging something that's safe to eat. Yes, yeah. Um, I've learned a lot from other people. Uh, Peter Langlands is a really well-known forager in Christchurch, and I did some of his workshops when I first moved here. And I've got tons of field guides, some of his, which you can get on Trade Me. Um, I've got a few right here on my desk. Um, there's a lot of great websites. And I think like anything, you just got to do your own research. And then, you know, it's pretty rare that I have any sources like a field, a published field guide, that's a credible source, right? But some yeah. random website, you don't really know who wrote it or what credentials they have, et cetera. So it's really all about, you know, having five, six, seven points of reference, and then also having the real time experience of seeing a species and checking out its different characteristics and, and in your own mind being like, yep, I know what I've got now. Mm, mm. And um, I guess living in, um, a city. What does foraging look like in the city versus, I guess, if we're rural? Yeah, great question. I'll start on the, with the fungi lens because I find this one quite interesting. But at least in in New Zealand, when you're in the in a city like Auckland or Wellington or Christchurch or Dunedin, um, you can actually find a lot of really good edible fungi spe- species in the heart of the city. Um, For example, here in Hagley Park, when it was being set up, a lot of trees were imported from Europe. Okay. And this would have been a ton of work because they had to put these massive trees on barges and basically bring them over um, across the ocean. And the tree's root balls came along with them to keep them alive on the journey. And the fungal mycelial network that I was talking about before, you know, is in the soil. Mm. And so we accidentally introduced species like porcini and birch bullet through that. Yeah. Um, so you really only find those introduced species in the more urban areas where we have those old trees that had those relationships when they came into the country. Mm. Um, you will find some porcini like in North Canterbury, but for the most part, it's pretty urban. urban. But then on, you know, in the more general, with the more general foraging lens in the city here in Christchurch, it's really unique because we've got the red zone, which starts just a few blocks from my flat, which is in the central city. Um, And so that provides almost more of a rural foraging setting, but in a really urban environment because Mm. it's just this big tract of land um, that used to be residential, but is now just kind of rewilding since the earthquake. So you get a lot of, um, yeah, edible weeds through there, a lot of fungi through there, um, some old 
uh, stone fruit through there. Um, there's tons of different species in the red zone. But then just generally urban foraging is a lot of just sort of walking around and looking for protected areas that are, you know, not being actively used, that have kind of been forgotten about, that are just sort of doing their own thing and seeing what they have to offer. Mm, interesting. And when you say um, some of the weeds that you've become more interested in as well, now for just like the general listener, what sort of yeah. things are we talking about? Is it like these garden weeds that we, we come across yeah. and we, we fend 100%. off? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I um, I was a really lazy winter gardener. I didn't really do anything in my garden, but pretty much everything that grew in there is edible. So really? it was quite nice. Yeah. Yeah. So um, like in my garden right now, I've got a lot of land cress, which is watercress's less glamorous cousin. Okay. Um, but it's still got that really lovely peppery flavor. Um, so that grows in, you know, in the garden really easily. Shepherd's purse is another one that I've got heaps of. Um, miner's lettuce is grew all over my garden. Um, that's a really lovely wild microgreen. Chickweed is another one. What else? Cleavers, they're the kind of sticky plant that sticks to you. Oh, yeah. Um, but, they've, but they can be really nice in a pesto or um, a smoothie even. And... What else? Dock. Dock grows pretty much everywhere. Same with longleaf plantains. And yeah, I mean, if you if you Google any of these and you're a gardener, you'll see it and be like, oh, I've seen that a hundred times before. Yeah, but they've they've pulled it out. <laughs> and yeah, and not probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, say you're going out foraging, whether that be urban or rural. Are there any <laughs> sort of rules or guidelines of, I guess it's more about etiquette on how and when to forage? Yeah, I think um, on the etiquette front, um, obviously really important to respect the environment where you are foraging. So, you know, just be gentle with the land, um, never take more than half. Um, think about the system that you're foraging within and how to protect it and preserve it over time and for other people and other foragers as well. Um, and then also I think it's, you know, it's, it's looking after the environment and then it's also um, looking after and thinking about and respecting the humans that surround the things you're foraging as well. So, you know, on a base level, you wouldn't want to forage on private property without asking for permission. But then, you know, if you're keen to forage a native species like Kawakawa, you know, recognizing it is Tonga and learning about it, doing some research, um, making sure you're not foraging on um, like a reserve or piece of land that's um, not meant to be foraged on that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, it's really important. It's not sort of just going out there and looking for it everywhere <laughs> um but I guess if it's a situation where you're like what you said is that so it's a mindful activity you might be just going out for a walk and you sort of stumble across some things then ideally that's still going to be in a place where it's public space and you're being yeah. respectful of all of that as well and are there any I guess weather conditions that make a forage more fruitful it just depends what you're looking for um on the fungi front, a little rain's always helpful. Yeah. <laughs> we had a really dry, really dry summer last year, so then the autumn season seemed a little bit slow for fungi. But yeah, I think 
I think sometimes it's tempting to try to tee up all the right elements and, mm. you know, sort of predict like, oh, today is going to be a great day. Yeah. Sort of like how surfers will check out a surf cam rather yeah. than drive out to the surf, <laughs> which is not really, unfortunately, there's no like foraging cam. You just kind of, <laughs> I think, have to just always be looking and then mm. just, you know, even if it's 10 minutes, just go for a walk and just see what's there. And you do that every day and you'll start noticing more things and then one day you'll find something really cool. Mm, yeah. And I think that I guess what you were saying before, it's um, a bit of a mindful practice uh, as well. And when you try and plan everything and have all your ducks in a row, that sort of defeats a bit of the purpose of going out and experiencing it. Mm. Um, yeah, definitely. One thing that I found really fascinating was with the Mora mushrooms, um, how they grow following a bushfire. And it's sort of one of the, I felt like it was quite symbolic of something good coming out of something quite destructive and at mm. times very, very destructive. Um, I guess are there other uh, fungi that we have in New Zealand that come out of sort of situations that would be a bit unexpected? We do have morels here, which is really interesting. And um, they're not super well documented, but they do come up, yeah, as you said, in um, areas that have been burned or where there's been a campfire mm. or a bushfire. And then also, um, just in the last week, I've seen um, people around Christchurch finding morels in abandoned gardens in the red zone and areas that maybe once were really vibrant and you know busy and being used and now they're a little bit quieter, whether it's because of the earthquake or, you know, something else. Um, yeah, we do get morales popping up, which is, is really cool. And, yeah, definitely symbolic of sort of a, a new start. Mm, mm, that was really interesting. Um, and so say you've gone foraging and you've found a few things that um, you're really interested in or they caught your eye. How do you know how to plan or prepare them into edible food? Yeah, great question. I think this is kind of where the learning curve gets a little bit trickier is that um, there aren't tons of things that are really tasty to just forage and eat immediately. There are, yeah. there are lots of them. But then with edible weeds, you kind of need to judge them up and turn them into something that's a little more um, – appealing and some of them you know don't have the best texture when you just get them fresh so um i did a story on this the other day but um an edible weeds pesto is a great way to use up a lot of foraged greens in, in one go and really get to know the flavors and um that's a great thing you can do um but then beyond that i think it comes down to just foraging a little bit at a time getting familiar with the flavor and depending on what it is, a great way to do that is um, just a cold water extraction. So you can just put whatever you found in a bit of cold water, leave it to sit for a while, and then just sip away, see what it tastes like. Um, just kind of, yeah, meditate on it, do some Googling, see what other people have tried, um, hop on social media. There are tons of ideas there. Um, yeah, you just kind of have to keep getting to know the ingredient. It's kind of that long-term relationship I was talking about before. So. You said before that there's not too many things that are 
sort of immediately tasty straight away when you when you forage them but have you come across anything that sort of actually took you by surprise that was quite a nice flavor that you've you've started to use yeah tree strawberries didn't really know what they were until two summers ago and I was on a walk with one of my friends who's um kiwi and she was like oh yeah like they always told us um as in, in primary school not to eat those because they were poisonous and I was like I'm going to do some research on those and they're not poisonous. They're actually really tasty. And they, um, the outside texture is a little bit funky, but if you just peel off the kind of texture on the outside, it has a really nice, almost strawberry blueberry combination flavor. Mm. Um, so those, I actually just ate fresh all the time last summer. Really good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I gave some to my friend who's a bartender and he turned them into a really nice cordial cocktail. Um, oh fantastic yeah there's definitely a lot of a lot of flavors there's a lot of bitter flavors especially in the edible weeds category which Mm. um i've actually started to like a lot more just generally um in my cooking i love how peppery nasturtium flowers are they look like they'd be really sweet but they're they've got that spicy peppery edge to them which is kind of surprising they're so orange and bright they look almost tropical and then they're Mm. sort of a bold kind of you know dominating flavor which is cool yeah Um, what do you think the perception is of eating foraged fungi at at this point in time i think it's definitely becoming more more people are interested in it and more people are giving it a go and you know learning more about it but i think there's definitely still sometimes a reaction of oh my gosh that's so dangerous (laughs) which is funny um because it can be dangerous for sure but I think the the more you learn about it the more you learn that if you know what you're up to it's it's really not not too dangerous but um you do have to be aware of of those really poisonous species yeah yeah and I guess are there any in particular that can be um maybe the sort of a bit risky if you maybe get them confused with any other safer fungi? Definitely. So just kind of as a general rule of thumb, most poisonous mushrooms fall into the gilled mushroom category, meaning when you flip them over, they have gills. They look like a classic button mushroom that you get at the supo. They've got those gills on the Mm. underside, look like the gills of a fish, basically. And most poisonous species actually have gills, whereas Bullet species, um, polypores don't have gills. You flip them over and it's a, it's a more, um, smooth surface that has okay. lots of tiny little holes, almost like our own skin. And that just, that one feature makes, makes it a lot easier to distinguish between, okay, I think that I have a bullet or a polypore, an edible bullet, or no, I don't have that. Mm. Um, That's so really yeah, interesting. We do have, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. And we do have, um, death caps most mushroom poisoning fatalities around the world are caused by death caps and we do have them in new zealand um, and i think there was an, one incident last year in 2020 in hamilton where someone did eat one um so yeah you definitely do want to be aware and yeah not take any chances but mm. as long as you're you know, doing your due diligence yeah it's a little bit confusing that the more poisonous ones have that gill um, structure yet so do the ones that uh, people might commonly see in in the supermarket 
Yeah, true. Sorry, I didn't explain this very well. <laughs> the fact that they're poisonous doesn't actually have anything to do with the gills. It's just yeah. if you want to start out with fungi foraging, mm. it's a lot easier to start with the birch bullet category that doesn't have gills just yeah. because that that one factor is really visually easy to identify. Mm. Um, so it just makes them a little bit easier if you're just starting out. Yeah, that makes sense. Not to be confused. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess what do you think we as consumers and eaters could be doing to, to make a difference to the way we see fungi as a vital food source? I think just continuing to, to try them. And I think lots of us kind of grew up thinking, including myself, grew up thinking, oh, mushrooms are yuck, kind of icky. And they can be. Like the one I forged today was kind of slimy and I had to cut away the, the gross bits. And um, I think, yeah, just the more you can get out and look around for wild fungi and even if you don't forage it, just just check it out. And, um, yeah, I think the more people learn about it, the more we'll appreciate it as a wild food source but also a cultivated one as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And one question I like to ask my guests on the show is that if you could change one thing in the world of food and health, what would it be? That's a great question. I guess if I'm putting my like foraging lens on it, I think things like foraging and gardening and, you know, growing your own food, making your own when maybe my grandparents were growing up, that was something that maybe you did more out of necessity. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas now things have kind of swung the other way, like convenience is a little bit cheaper and having the time to go for a forage or having the time and the resources to, to plant a garden is, um, is really a privilege. And so finding ways to make it more accessible for people to, yeah, grow their own or learn about foraging or get the resources they need to learn about foraging. I think that's what I would change about food and health is, um, yeah, making it as accessible as possible and um, removing as many gates, if you will, to to the activity. Um, yeah, to make it to make it because it really is for everyone. And I guess that's that's a really important point that it it can be for everyone. But also, what you said earlier was that a lot of people not a lot, but people have thought, oh, that's their sort of first initial thought was of foraging is all that could be quite dangerous. You don't know what you're eating. Um, Say someone is inspired to learn more about foraging or or even just think, oh, that's something I want to to learn about, but actually get out there and, and try. How do you even begin? Oh, great question. I think the easiest, cheapest, fastest, maybe even the most effective way to get stuck in is I I spend a lot of time online and all of us increasingly spend a lot of time online. So I'm always thinking of ways of like, okay, I'm already spending a lot of time online. How can I make it as beneficial as possible? Hmm. And so just following, like I just follow tons of foragers and, and hunters and fishers and farmers and growers on Instagram and on Facebook. So even if I am scrolling, I'm kind of learning at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to get started because you just sort of drip feed information Mm -hmm. to your brain. And as I was saying before, like with sumac, it took me 18 months to learn about it, which I think was probably on social media or online somewhere to read about it, just to kind of have it in my field of vision and then actually see it when I was foraging. Mm. Um, And so I think social media is a great place to get stuck in. 
I'm a big reader, so I love checking out books from the library. Um, the Forger's Treasure Treasury is a great one. Um, that's specific to New Zealand. Peter Langland, who I mentioned before, has some great uh, field guides on Trade Me, which are just I think they're ten bucks each, and he just sends them to you as a PDF. So really accessible as well. YouTube is also a great resource. Yeah, I think wherever you like to to learn now already, you can learn about foraging there too, probably. Yeah, and obviously following you <laughs> and sure, your you can follow me, yeah. and your foraging adventures as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, you, what would your three key take home messages be around fungi and foraging? I think just the my top takeaway would be if you're keen to get into it, awesome. I think the best way to approach it is just with that kind of patience and and practice, and just sort of approaching it like. A lifelong activity because it kind of is um, and just really enjoying the learning process and trying to avoid the temptation of like oh I'm gonna go out and find xyz today yeah um, and even just when you talk about it talking about I'm going to look for or I'm hoping to find rather than I'm going to get yeah <laughs> you know it's that sort of respect for the ambiguity and and the not randomness but chance aspect of it Mm. um and then two is um yeah just using it as a way to explore your relationship with the land and with what's around you with your places um it's a great way to just connect and and really step back and slow down and appreciate the little stuff sounds corny but i mean it in a literal way as well like a lot of these things are quite small you've really got to have an eye out for them um And then three is just keep learning, be patient, don't rush it, never eat anything you're not 100% sure of. Um, And yeah, join groups, get to know other foragers, follow along on foraging pages, check out some books and just, yeah, all of a sudden you'll kind of be like, wow, I actually know a lot now. And you'll go for a walk and see 10 things that you can identify and that's really satisfying and Mm. um, kind of a cool journey to be on yeah and just sort of a random thought do you have it I mean apart from your social media account where you sort of document some of the things you find do you have any other way of sort of actually capturing that process of what you've found and where you found it or do you do you care about that or is it more just the gradual learning and discovering each time you go out it's a great question I was actually thinking about this the other day because sort of like now I have this kind of food map in my brain of all this stuff that grows all over the city. And, but if you ask me on the spot where forget me nots grew, I don't know if I could tell you immediately. Um, and I think part of me is like, Oh, I should really put it in a spreadsheet and I should start documenting it. And we're really lucky because there are people that are, actually cataloging our wild food resources on sites Mm. like iNaturalist. Um, But I guess for me and my own foraging, it's kind of like one activity in my life that I can't really control. I can just do it and see what happens and just be on this, on this journey. Anytime I go for a walk where I don't Mm -hmm. really know what I'm going to see. And I, you know, I can't really control what the weather does or, you know, whether, 
a certain lot that I like to forge and gets developed or stuff like that. I don't really have any other ways to document it. I think the interesting point there is it's the one thing that I guess you're not specifically controlling or monitoring. You're sort of still, mm. it's it's the experience, which is, I guess, why it fits into your life and why you continue to do it. It's sort of not like everything else. Um, yeah, exactly. Maybe one day you'll create an entire lives food map. <laughs> yeah, well, there, I mean, there is there are some really cool efforts to create more food maps, and I think it is really an important conversation topic, and it is an important piece of the puzzle because if we don't have them documented, then it's really hard to actually look after them as well. Mm. So, um, you know, especially with land being developed at an increasing rate. We need more housing. We always are trying to balance these things out. And if we don't have data and an understanding of what resources we're losing when we change certain parts of the environment, Mm. then it's a lot easier to just bulldoze right through things, if you will. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Especially if people have no idea. Yeah. And Christchurch, the city council actually put out a map. I think it was, it was either last year or the year before of wild foods in the city and through the red zone it's more things like apple trees pear trees bigger stuff um but yeah i see people using that sometime and i think that's that's really cool it's a good start and it could be the sort of seed that triggers a little bit of more fascination into to you know species beyond those yeah exactly which is cool and if listeners wanted to know more about you where can they find you um, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is live underscore moss with three S's. Um, yeah, I just share a lot of my foraging adventures there. And yeah, that's sort of my main online home. And um, is there any particular, I uh, guess, site? You've mentioned a few of the um, field guides, but any other sort of websites or organizations that are useful for people to find out more and build their knowledge yeah i know we've talked a lot about edible weeds and julia's edible weeds is a website that um i've used a lot and then yeah all the field guides i mentioned are great and then i would just say hop on google and just google see if there's any foraging or foray groups around you on the fungi front there's a lot of Facebook groups that are really helpful. And oftentimes I see people, you know, posting, Oh, I'm in such and such an area. Does anyone want to go for a forage? Um, and yeah, a lot of people are, are really interested in it. Um, so lots of ways to get connected, just, Mm. just kind of a matter of getting some resources like a field guide so you can increase your own knowledge and then also finding some, some other humans that are keen to deal with you. Which is nice because it gives it a social aspect and it sounds like the community is quite vast as well in all different areas. You just got to know where to find the right people. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, of course, like find the right people and, you know, sometimes I think people are protective of their their spots where they Mm. find things, which is, uh, you know, just kind of a different different element of it (laughs) yeah and I mean understandable I guess if it's it just you know they've discovered something and it's like a special spot and they like going back there but I guess it like with most things in life it's better when we share them with others (laughs) yeah definitely 
Yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much, Liv, for joining me today. I have really learned a lot. I knew it was a big world of finding poetry and there's so much to learn, but I guess it's knowing that it's so much bigger than I thought and it's like a lifelong process and these and it's sort of these things that take a long time to learn from start to finish not just on the foraging front of then what do you do with it so you can actually eat it which is a big part of it as well yeah and you're never really done like there's no there's no end no destination yeah yeah you never know everything no absolutely and that's where I guess uh having the community and everyone sharing their knowledge is is part of that as well definitely yeah but thank you so much Liv it's been so great to have you thanks for having me it's been been awesome thank you so much for joining me I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did don't forget to subscribe so you can find out when new episodes are released And if you love the podcast, please consider leaving a review so more people can discover it. In the meantime, you can follow the podcast and my work over on Instagram and Facebook at Nourish with Nikki. And to find out more about working with me one-to-one to to improve your gut health, energy and mood, then visit NikkiHurstHouse.com to book your free discovery call today.